Alright, well if you would, as far as this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. So if you would, please open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our study of biblical missions as it pertains to just looking at what Paul did. And uh, as you know, we've been, we've been trying to think our way through as we look at Paul's first missionary journey in particular how our view of missions has shifted, right? I, I told you, were you to be a New Testament recipient of the book of Acts, and if you remember, Luke, who wrote Acts and the book of Luke, they came as a package together. So just envision yourself in a local church in whatever time, let's say the 50s, 60s, 70s AD, and you're, you're receiving this packaged concept of Luke and Acts, you would have seen the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. <laughs> And that, <laughs> and uh, our nursery ministry. That's why we're doing an expansion. You know, we gotta put the babies around. But um, you would have received um, Jesus' ministry, and then you would have seen the Book of Acts, which would have been the fulfillment of the Great Commission and what Jesus wanted His disciples to do when He ascended and sent them the Spirit. So, really, the book of Acts, if you would have been a New Testament Christian, would have just been normal, ordinary stuff of what it looked like to do what we call biblical missions. The sent ones go, they preach, they see churches planted, elders established, they replicate that model and they go again. But, unfortunately, we've been kind of backing our way into it because the unfortunate part of our understanding of it is the view of missions has drifted so much that we're looking at a normal concept of biblical missions and it seems far more narrow than how we've historically understood it in our modern day missions movement. In fact, I'm going to read <laughs> a, uh, a little section from an article that I discovered. And what I want to do is I'm going to read it up front and then I want you guys to think a little bit critically and tell me what's wrong with it. And we do that because part of having a biblical understanding of what is right, we need to say what is wrong so we know what's right. Every truth propositional statement gives you what's true and then exposes what's wrong. Well, here's an article on missions and why we're taking this approach, looking at Paul's view of missions and saying, how does this course correct wrong views we've had of missions? So here's the article's title. Maybe you can... The title will help you even see what's wrong. A new generation redefines what it means to be a missionary. So right there, we could have a pretty good conversation. But just store that in your mind. At the center of gravity of missions work shifts, the profile of a typical Christian missionary is changing. And so is the definition of their mission work. Which historically tended to be the center, which historically tended to be and center on the explicit goal of converting people to Christianity. While some denominations, particularly evangelicalism, continue to emphasize this, Christian missionaries, however, nowadays are relatively less inclined to tell others about their faith by handing out translated Bibles and more likely to show it through their work often a tangible social project. For example, in the context of the humanitarian crisis. Humanitarian work has long been part of the Christian mission experience, but it can now take precedence over the work of preaching. Some missions do not involve proselytizing in any significant way. Then she quotes Melanie McAllister from George Washington University who teaches on missions. Melanie says this, It's not to say that no one ever does preaching. Of course they do. She goes on, But the notion that our main goal is converting people has been much less common among the more liberal missionaries. End quote. Instead, undertaking mission work can entail serving as a doctor, an aid worker, an English teacher, a farmer helper, or a pilot flying to another country to help them build wells. Many missionaries I've spoken to say they hope their actions and not necessarily their words will inspire others to join them. Then this professor finishes from George Washington University. When I'm abroad, I don't use the term missionary because of the stigma that it carries with most communities. Jennifer Taylor, 38-year-old missionary in Ukraine, told me recently. Then she goes on to say what this missionary said. I just usually use the word volunteer or English teacher, so it actually sounds like I'm there with a purpose. Wow, interesting. 
And I'm not going to make you believe something you don't want to believe. She considers her job to model a life with purpose, which she hopes can lead people to embrace Christianity without having, to be f- having it forced down their throats. End quote. What's wrong with that? We can do what's right with it, but it'd be a short conversation. So, what's, what's wrong with that, guys? I mean, that's sad. I mean, that's tragic. When I read that, it breaks my heart to think about that. But what's wrong with it? I want to hear from you guys. You hear that? Tell me what's wrong with it. Right at, right at the end there, she's, she's assuming that she's the one who's going out and saving people. Mm. I don't want to force anybody. You couldn't possibly, actually. <laughs> yeah. The assumption is that man yeah. is the main vehicle to be able to accomplish Christian missions work. Yep. So I'll just go ahead. Romans 10, 14. Go ahead. Uh, Romans 10, 14. Speak up. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they How can they be saved without the message? How beautiful are the feet, that passage goes on to say. So, really in one sense, she's redefining missions and redefining love. She's calling it more loving to go and not preach them the very message that can save them by doing things that can help them here and now. So you redefine missions, you redefine love, you redefine Christ. Wow. Yep. Rebecca. Man, Rebecca, that's insightful. Uh, that kind of mission work, you can get a big following fast. You can send back big reports to your churches about all the people you're reaching. I wonder what you need to think about. I wonder what Jesus' missions report would have been after John 6. <laughs> 20,000 people are there. He feeds them. That would have been a good missions report. 20,000 people are listening to me. And I preached. Three times I preached the message to come and follow me. By the time I was done, there was 12 disciples left. They were confused. I had asked them if they were going to go to. Peter stood up and said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. I left with 12. <laughs> Be a different report. I'm not saying we're looking for church shrinkage, but I am saying that the goal was preaching, not the approval of man, to see people saved. But you could have a big following, and you could, you could really feed your lust to be approved by everyone by not saying anything that could potentially offend. It's insightful. Yeah, Mary. Um, also, I like the idea that missions is for the long haul. So Paul says, um, after so many things, after suffering, after being imprisoned, after being beaten, after some days, uh, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit brethren in every city in which we have proclaimed the word of God. Proclaimed. The, the word of the Lord and see how they are. Yeah, I love that. We'll be that in that soon. That's their second missionary journey. They're going to check on the places where the word has been preached and churches have been planted and elders have been established and they're going to minister to them. Long haul. Long-term ministry. Yeah, th- this temporal ministry, it doesn't have the long-term eternal perspective. The goal's wrong. What about the title? A new generation redefines what it means to be a missionary. What's wrong with that, Dustin? I was going to say, um, sorry, Romans uh, 1.16 is the opposite of that. Ashamed of that which you could hand to people that would give them eternal life. It's like that John Piper uh, quote, and I'm saying it, you know, just in summary. I'm not quoting him exactly, but he says, "Missionary work like this, where you help people's humanitarian needs without giving them the gospel, would be a parallel to saying that it's loving to comb a man's hair when he's on an electric chair." <laughs> what do you ultimately accomplish? A full stomach and a roof over their head on the way to the judgment. Yeah. I think it's interesting that we're redefining the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This one's right out there. This is the full, fullest expression. Yeah. A new generation redefines what it means to be a missionary. Beloved, do we get to redefine God? I mean, just, just appreciate the title for a second. We're going back and saying, God, what's your definition of missions? They're saying, there's a new generation that looks at that old way that God did it, and they're going to give you a new definition of what it means to be a missionary, a sent one. And we say, oh, how dare them? 
But beloved, how often in conversations are we adding things to the concept of missions that we wouldn't be able to go to our Bible and defend, even in well-meaning conservative circles? We could say something's missions, but if someone said to us, show me in the Bible where that's Book of Acts missions, that whatever work you think you're doing. If you can't defend it from Scripture, then we're redefining what God says missions is. And I can appreciate how hard it is to be in the American evangelical landscape that calls everything missions. But if the sent ones are the missionaries and the Bible's our authority, we must be careful we don't redefine missions according to what makes it comfortable for us and some of our friendships when people don't like our narrow view of biblical missions. Because if Christ is our authority and we want to honor Him, then we want His definition no more, no less. That's it. But they're redefining it. Well, I found some other good definitions, and I'll read a couple of them around the internet. Grace Emanuel does not have a corner on missions. <laughs> the Bible is the one that teaches us what it is. And I found some other guys that describe missions well. Here's a couple of them. Listen to this. Missions is a specialized term. By it, it means sending forth an authorized person beyond the borders of a New Testament church, and her immediate goal is to influence and proclaim with the gospel of Jesus Christ in gospel destitute areas to win converts of other faiths and non-faiths to Jesus Christ, establish functioning, multiplying local congregations who will bear the fruit of Christianity in the community in that country. Amen. Send them out. Preach the truth. Go somewhere where there's not gospel truth, even across cultural border, cultural context. See churches planted, established, replicate. That was George Peters in a biblical theology of missions. Here's another one. A missionary, a ministering agent selected by God and his church, amen, to communicate the gospel message across any and all cultural boundaries for the purpose of leading people to Christ and establishing them in viable fellowships that are capable of reproducing themselves. Amen again. Great definition. Here's another one. Cross-cultural church planning missionaries are messengers sent by their respective churches to places where there's no Christian witness. They live an exemplary life, communicate the gospel in ways that their neighbors can understand, so using the language. Their aim is to see the conversions to Jesus Christ. They teach believers to obey all that Christ commanded. The final goal of the missionary activity is a body of obedient Christian disciples who are able to carry on the work of evangelism and discipleship among their own people and who are eager to reach other lost people. Robert Ferris, Establishing Ministry Training. Those are great definitions. Those are definitions that you could go to your Bible and defend. And so my goal in this study of Paul's first missionary journey with all of us is to kind of pull us in to the text of Scripture and just put the question to the text to say, what did Paul actually do in Book of Acts missions? And as Luke records it for us, that should just be assumed what a missionary does, that, that and no less and no more. And so as we've been looking at this, our outline, if you've been taking notes, we're just going to jump back into it, has been this. Luke is documenting for us what it looks like in Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. He had John. We saw that he bailed. We talked about that last time. And so I've called these conviction-building occasions of Paul's first missionary journey. Conviction-building occasions. And why I say conviction-building is the early church would have looked at this and it would have solidified and made them confident that what they were doing was right and any way that they drifted, they would have resolved to have stronger convictions to do exactly what God wanted His sent ones to do. The first conviction-building occasion was this. We saw Paul and Barnabas sent out by a local church. Remember we talked about that. Local churches train men, Affirm men and send them. If an agency is involved like we see today, that's only through the channel of the local church affirming them and then utilizing that agency. That agency has no biblical authority to affirm or send outside of a local church's authority. We saw that. The church in Antioch sent them out. Second thing we saw, the Word of God polarizes and plants. This could be every point. Every time they go somewhere, the Word of God leads the way. They preach to see conversions, and you see two things. People soften and people harden. People are saved and people want to kill them. Just like Jesus' ministry, right? You go out and you preach and you're going to see both pol you're going to see polarizing and people going separate directions and then the Word of God plants. In fact, if you just, I would challenge you, go from 
the book of Acts and just pull out a pencil and highlight every time in the book of Acts, I'm going to do this for you one Sunday morning, on how it says, and the word went forth, and the church went on through the ministry of the word. All you see is the word expanding all across the world. It leads all of missions. Third one we're going to look at today, which should be fun, is this, the third conviction building occasion. Sent ones, we could call them missionaries. If you, if you don't know where I get that definition, sent one, that's the biblical term where we get the word missionaries, a sent one. So missionary or sent one, when they go, here's what they do. They stand and preach Christ, no matter the audience, nor the cost. They stand and preach Christ, no matter the audience, nor the cost. And if you want to envision this next section, it's, it'd be kind of fun to think about. Luke is telling the story retelling it for us, but were Paul to come up here and retell this for us, he would basically in summary say, hey, I want to tell you about my first missionary journey. I'm going to tell you about one of the stops that I went to. I went to this other Antioch. So the, the first Antioch, the Syrian Antioch sent me out. Pisidian Antioch is the one I'm going to be going to next. And I want to tell you what happened. I went and preached. I preached some more. Some people responded and were saved. Some people got angry and kicked me out of town and I went and did it again. It was a really great time. <laughs> and I had joy in the Lord as I saw God doing His great work. That's basically what Paul would say about this next account. But why do I say the point is they preach Christ no matter the audience nor the cost? Is three groups emerge in this passage. You're going to have the Jews that are ethnic Jews in the, in the synagogue that are meeting. That means they are ethnically Jewish and they're also practicing Judaism. You're going to have God-fearers in this passage. and You remember we ran into them with Cornelius. They're proselytes, partial proselytes to Judaism, meaning they're attending synagogue worship. They're Gentile ethnically, so they're non-Jew, but they've attached themselves to this one true God type of mindset. They're no longer thinking there's many gods. They just think there's one God. The fullest proselyte would go all the way to the point of circumcision. Most proselytes, these God-fearers, they just hang around synagogue worship and they like the idea of being around the formality of Jewish worship. And some of them even embrace different aspects of the Old Testament. They're called God-fearers. Not technically God-fearers, but by association they're hanging around. They're in this passage. And in fact, in the book of Acts, God-fearers are some of the most receptive people to the message of the cross throughout the book of Acts. Very interesting. The third group you're going to see is the Gentiles. Those that are, are ethnically Gentile, not Jew, and they're worshiping all their false gods. They have no association with temple worship in the synagogue. They're in this passage as well. Guess what Paul does? He doesn't go preach a different message to each of them. He doesn't go and preach human flourishing. He doesn't tell them how he's going to build wells with them. He doesn't tell them what social thing he's going to accomplish with them. He does one thing. He's going to compassionately, courageously, lovingly, even tenderly, you're going to see his compassion, preach Christ to all of them, and God's going to save people from all three groups. It's, it's not that complex, and yet we drift so much from just the main thing of missions is to preach Christ no matter the cost, no matter the audience. And guess what? There's going to be a big cost at the end of this because he's going to get persecuted and the rulers in the city are going to rise up against him. But guess what happens at the end? I'm going to tell you the finish line before the beginning. A church is planted and established and they're going to come back and establish elders and there's a strong gospel work that happens through the persecution. God's always building his church. To put to your point, Cameron, it's not a man-made work. It's God's work. And the only way you know it's God's work is if you're giving God's message and doing what God says. Or else you could just assume it's you. So, set one, stand and preach. So let's walk through it. Look at Acts 13. We're going to start in verse 14 and get a running start. And here's what I'm going to do through Paul's sermon. Some of you are going to say, stop! Go slower on that point. I'm going to keep flying. Because it's a long sermon. I'm going to give some commentary. But I want to keep moving along with Luke here. And Luke's documenting it for us. So we're just going to move on through it. I'll, I'll give you some different points. So, look at Paul here. Verse 14. John's now bailed. It's Paul and Barnabas that are left. Acts 13, verse 14. Notice. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. That's the second Antioch, about some seven, 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And on the, this is in the Galatian region. A lot of Gentiles, Greek speaking. And on that day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now this is interesting. They show up to town and they go into synagogue worship 
And you can just appreciate Paul and Barnabas, they're coming and they've got a message that's basically going to explode this place. And in synagogue worship, what you have is you go in and everyone sits, at least in what seems to be in the Galatian region. Um, they go in and they sit and then someone stands to preach. That's different. You remember Jesus stood and then sat down and taught some of his ministry back in Jerusalem. But seemingly in this area, the beginning of synagogue worship, it'd be like this. You'd walk in, you'd sit down, they'd read one section from the Torah, from, from the five books that we have, the first five books of our Old Testament, and then they'd read one section from the prophets. So notice, after reading the law, verse 15, and the prophets, the synagogue officials started to speak to them. So here's the scene. Paul and Barnabas are sitting back here somewhere in the congregation, in here. It's full of people. Now appreciate the audience. God-fearers that are non-unsaved Gentiles that are attached to Judaism and practicing Jews in there that are also unsaved. But they're a long ways from Jerusalem. So you can appreciate his sermon he's about to preach is going to say a bunch of things that we would think this should be basic knowledge in one sense about Christ. But remember, they're a long ways from Jerusalem. Seven, eight hundred miles by boat and by foot in this time is another world away. So he's going into a context where some of them probably would have heard of Christ, heard about Jesus the Nazarene that claimed he was the Messiah, but it's probably as likely that many of them, this would have been new news to them, the fulfillment of Christ's coming and all that he was and the attachments he's going to make. Because what he's going to do is he's going to go into the Old Testament and just start connecting all types of dots all the way back from the Exodus account to Saul and then to David, and then he's just going to drop on them. That all gets fulfilled in Jesus. So you can appreciate the audience. So they're sitting there, and I'm assuming that the men, these synagogue officials, look at 15. The synagogue officials said to them, Brethren, if you have a word of exhortation to the people, say it. Now, I'm assuming that some of those synagogue officials might have thought, hey, maybe they're going to bring us some clarity, because some of them seemingly are going to get saved. But some of them that are going to eventually get really angry at them, probably wouldn't have been so thrilled to give him an opportunity to speak would they have known all that they were going to say. So just appreciate the scene that he's in. And so what you have is the law was read and the prophets are read. And you think, well, what was read that day? Because every day they would often, they would read, every synagogue gathering, they'd read a section from the law and the prophets. I think it's possible that they read the Exodus account from the law and they read in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel from the prophetic writings. And I only think that because that's where Paul turns his sermon. So I'm wondering if he's listening to that saying, okay, I know exactly where I'm going to go with this. You're going to read those two sections? Perfect. I'm going to tie a straight line for you all the way to the Messiah. And that's where his sermon's going to go. So notice he stands up with courage and he says this, 15, brethren. Now, you can appreciate the warmth in that because he's one of them as a Jew. He's not coming there to be belligerent. He's coming there because he wants to win their soul. So there's warmth in that. There's receptivity in that. There's urgency. Brethren. Oh, no. They were, excuse me. He's going to say that to them later. After the reading of the law, they said to them, Brethren, if any of you have a word of exhortation of the people, say it. And then he addresses them as his fellow comrades. Notice, he goes on. Verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, men of Israel, so men he's acknowledging them respectfully, and you who fear God, that's ethnic Jews who are practicing and Gentiles who are associated with Judaism. Now notice 17. The God of this people Israel, who you just heard read about, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. So he starts his sermon in the Exodus account. He's showing that God is a deliverer. Verse 18. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. It's interesting terminology. God <laughs> He's saying, yeah, your forefathers, my forefathers, let's not talk about them like they were all glamorous with Pollyanna lenses on. They blew it. They were proud and arrogant, and God patiently tolerated them. That's the word. He put up with them. He tolerated them. He was patient with them. 19. However, when he had destroyed... Let's go back to 18 here real quick. I want to make one more, one more comment about that. For, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. So just the documenting the time period. And then 19. 19. 
When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land and inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. You may say, what is going on there? Well, you remember over that 450 year period, you got 400 years in slavery and roughly 40 years in the wilderness and then some other time periods for travel and other dynamics that you can go further study on those dynamics. But it was about 450 years. And God brought victory in the land. Notice 19, when he destroyed, destroyed the seven nations. Who were they? The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then notice... That little list there that he says, or he documents the seven nations that were destroyed. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read that section, here's what that section will say. These seven nations were greater and mightier than yourself. So in the Jewish mind, they immediately would have thought, this delivering God, this saving God, this God who's shown us mercy we don't deserve. So they're listening to Paul and probably thinking, this guy's tracking with us. He knows his Bible. He knows the Old Testament. He knows where we come from. Maybe they had heard about him and wondered what his view would be now that he's embraced Jesus the Messiah. But clearly, Paul knows the word. He stands up and he's starting to deliver them the faithfulness of God. Verse 20. After these things had happened, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. You remember, Samuel was the final judge and a prophet. But then he reminds them what their people did. The people of Israel asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. That was the Saul experiment. That didn't go real well. Remember, people of Israel got discontent. They wanted a God with skin. They wanted to be like the other nations. God said, fine, I'll give you Saul. And basically that was a disaster until God put a king in place, David. The people wanted Saul. God wanted David. So, verse 22. And you're probably, if you're sitting there in that room, I was envisioning myself, I'm thinking in the Jewish mind, I know all this stuff, Paul. This guy's given us the same old stuff. We just read it today. This is normal Old Testament material for us. But what Paul is doing is he's mounting a case and he's about to string a thread through and tie it all together in the person of the Messiah. It's a pretty sweet sermon. Notice 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. What he's starting to do, beloved, just stop for a second and appreciate this. David was installed by God as king. Every promise given to David... The people in the Israelite mind, you've got to put yourself in their mind, or in the Jewish mind, or these Gentile God-fears, every promise given to David was in one sense partially fulfilled and was representative of would ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah that they were still waiting for. So when you see promises and things said about David that will be fulfilled, they are oftentimes very uh, much partially fulfilled in their lifetime, but the fullest fulfillment is not till Jesus the King sits on the throne fully and finally. And so the Jewish mind is saying, okay, he's tying us back to the promised one, King David, who was the one sent, who the Messiah would come from his line. He's documenting for us God's faithfulness in that. And some may have been saying, where is he going? Others may have said, maybe he's going to go and make the connection to Jesus the Nazarene. So he goes on. 23, he reminds them, from the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought Israel a Savior. And up to that point, most of them probably would have been like, Hold on. Did he just say the Savior has come? Or did he say he's going to come? Notice, he goes from David to Jesus right here in this sermon. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now in that room, to use your vernacular, the millennial vernacular, that probably would have been the mic drop moment. <laughs> he just connected all that he said and ran through redemptive history and he's saying, Jesus the Messiah, that Nazarene we've heard about, he's the fulfillment. Now you probably would have had those sleeping in a normal synagogue sermon wake up and think, did he just say that? You would have had those that were hard-hearted, maybe starting to get angry. You would have had those that were being saved. The Spirit of God would have inserted that comment in their heart. And that probably would have been the beginning of waking them up. You would have had those that by the end of this sermon are going to say, come back next week, that were saying, that's interesting, I want more. God is going to use this in amazing ways. So, Paul goes backwards again. He says, let me just document a little bit more for you how I went from David to Jesus. 24. 
After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So now he's going back to John the Baptist. And you guys may have wondered, what is, what is the baptism of repentance versus the baptism of Jesus versus New Testament believers' baptism? The baptism of repentance, remember John came on the scene and says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And some were coming and repenting and being baptized and others weren't. Remember, he rebukes the Pharisees and says, What are you, you brood of vipers? You come down here. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's baptism was ceremonial. When you went into the water and you were baptized in that moment, you were saying, I have a broken, repentant, contrite heart, and I want to trust in the future deliverer, the one that you say is coming. And as a sign of contrition and brokenness and hatred for sin and turning from it, baptize me. It was a ceremonial baptism. It would be like us saying, you know, this is what it looks like to be broken over our sin in a moment of prayer. That was John's baptism. So he's saying John was paving the way through calling people to turn from their sin. 25, look at it. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John was a pointer to Jesus. Now notice this, 26. I love this because 26 represents something about Paul, beloved, that's helpful for us. He's about to rebuke them and tell them in a moment, if you don't turn to the Messiah, King Jesus, you're a scoffer, you're a fool, you're arrogant, you're proud, and you're going to go to hell, and King Jesus is coming. He's about to say that. But before he gives them the ultimatum of not following he pulls in what seems to be language that's very compassionate and is making an appeal to them to respond. So we don't want to envision Paul's preaching in missionary life where he's so courageous he just blisters everybody. He's coming out and saying, I want to document for you where the authority comes from, from what I'm saying. I want to trace a clear traceable line to Jesus for you, from David to Jesus. And I want to appeal to you men to truly consider the seriousness of the claims of Christ and what he says. And after he makes his appeal, he's going to come home with a serious ultimatum. But appreciate 26. He says, Brethren, my brothers, my, my countrymen whom I am Jewish with, I understand where you come from. I understand your burden. Listen to me. Sons of Abraham's family, he respects them. And those among you who fear God, you Gentiles who have been partial or full proselytes to Judaism, to us the message of salvation has been sent. Jesus, he's saying, was sent to us. We preach Christ. 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterance of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled by those condemning Him. Now stop for a second. Do you remember the main line Jesus would often say to the religious leaders? Have you not what? Have you not read? You, you, you need to appreciate something, and this is kind of a footnote, but you'll see this all through your scriptures. Jesus and the New Testament preaching of the apostles held the Jewish people and the God-fearers that were associated with them, the ethnic Jew and the God-fearer, responsible for not responding to the message of Jesus yet. Because he's saying there is plenty of content in the Old Testament that clearly pointed to him. But because you're already coming with a hard heart when you're reading your Old Testament, and it's just ritual for you, you're just, in our vernacular, you're just showing up to church and tolerating sermons every week, but you don't really love the Word of God. When I come and give you new information that would take the same faith to believe in the New Testament as the Old, you have a hard heart and you don't believe because you're already not believing the Old Testament. So this new information, you're going to reject it as well unless you repent of all the ways you've been rejecting the Old information. Have you not read? They are responsible. It's not like we get in the New Testament and we get the New Testament hermeneutic key and someone says, now you can understand the Old Testament. No, they should have known. Notice, he reminds them that the rulers in Jerusalem should have listened to the prophets, 27. Every Sabbath they heard and it was fulfilled and they rejected him. In fact, they reject him so much, 28. He reminds them that they found no ground for putting him to death. So what did they do? They asked Pilate that he could be executed. Just by implication, beloved, did you see what the human heart does 
when it hears truth and it doesn't want to respond to it, and they can't find a rational reason to stop the truth, they do everything they can to muzzle it. Notice, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When someone's in their sin and the Word of God is exposing them like these Jews again and again, they became irrational in their sin and even became murderous to silence the message. 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, so a fulfillment that the Messiah must die, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So men put him in the tomb, 30. But God raised him from the dead. Now he's getting into, for some, appreciate this. If you're in that audience, let's just think about yourself. Let's imagine this is new information for you. And that initial point he made about Jesus pricked your heart. A whole bunch of these people are about to get saved. You might be on the edge of your seat saying, Okay, keep going. So you're saying it was Jesus. He's the fulfillment of David. He's the promised Messiah. You're saying he died. You're saying he's risen. You're saying he showed up to people. Wow, I mean, appreciate that God was using his word to go forth and start to save these people. It's amazing. And for many days, 31, he says, many, look at verse 31. And for many days, 40 in all, he appeared to those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to his people. His followers who will live and die for him are further evidence of who he is. 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Beloved, I almost want to write that verse back to that George Washington professor and say, you don't want to proselytize? You don't want to preach? You want to do humanitarian good? You're cutting people off from the very message that can save them. The very best news you're not giving them because you won't preach. The goal of missions is proselytizing, salvation, conversion, souls saved, eternity changed. That is missions. He's preaching. He's proclaiming. He wants to see people impacted for the gospel. Notice 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus and it was written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, this was a pointer to the ultimate fulfillment that would come in Jesus. Notice 34, as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the Holy One and sure blessings of David. So you can appreciate, now he's just reaching into the Jewish mind and pulling Old Testament passages out. That's Isaiah 55.3. And he's reminding them of the promised deliverer. It is in Jesus. 35. Look at it now. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, doesn't that encourage you? Think about this. He just documented a bunch of passages in a sermon, quoting exactly where they're at. And in the middle of his sermon, he says, and there's another psalm, and you could maybe assume, and I can't quite call the address to mind right now, but I'm going to tell you what it says. Probably encourages some of you that struggle to get addresses in your mind for passages. Here's Paul in the middle of a sermon. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. And it says in the Word somewhere, <laughs> so here's Paul in his sermon, saying, and it says in another psalm, I just quoted to you Psalm 2, in another psalm it says, which he's actually quoting Psalm 16.10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. There's a lot to say about that. Probably a, 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 it is a comment written to David, and in one sense you could say that's evidence for the resurrection. It was partially fulfilled in that we could say David, King David, would ultimately not pay an eternal death, and it was ultimately, and he would go to heaven, but it was ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul is saying you guys should connect the dots. Partial promises to David are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. You missed it. 36. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Can we just stop? It's one of my favorite passages. Can I just back? Can I just pull over the car from the sermon for a second? Think about that. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He's saying that you will live on this earth as long as God has you for His purposes. And then once God's done with you, you'll go to sleep. Not one second sooner, not one second later. So whenever a person dies, this side you know, dies and goes to glory, that is the completion of their purpose that God had them on this earth and then He takes them to glory. You will not live one second longer. You will not live one second shorter. As John Patton said, I am immortal until God takes me home. I love that. Once I've served my purpose and done God's will, I go to sleep. 
how comforting to think about saints that die, that have been faithful. You could say to them, just before their death, you've served the purpose of God. And when He puts you to sleep, it's the perfect timing. He's done with His earthly work with you here, and now He wants to take you to glory to enjoy eternity. I love thinking about that way. I'm going to be here as long as God wants me to be here, then I'm going to sleep. That's good news. Back to the sermon. Okay. Back online. Online. For David, in contrast to Jesus who rose from the grave, he served his purpose, he went to sleep, he was never risen. 37. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. His body did not perish. His body did not um, you know, decay because God raised him. 38. Now watch this. He turns the corner on the sermon. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What is the mission of missions? Proclaiming to people that they're enslaved to their sin. He's going to tell them they're under the law, but you can have freedom through Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Trust in the Messiah, and He will transform your very nature and change your eternity, and you'll live for His glory with the joy of a clean conscience and a pure heart set apart for usefulness to God. An unbeliever doesn't die and say he served his purpose and he went to sleep for God's glory. No, he lives a miserable life for himself. Maybe he thinks he's happy. Then he dies and he faces God in the judgment. He's saying, don't be that. There's forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. And you can appreciate, some of them are thinking, you're saying I need forgiveness of sin. That's implying I'm that wicked of a sinner and I need it. That would have been very offensive to some. 39. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. The law could not save you, but Christ can save you. Now watch this rebuke. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which will never you, you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. That's a combination of Habakkuk 1.5, Isaiah 28.22-24, and Isaiah 29.14. Paul just took three passages and went, boom. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Guy knows his Bible. <laughs> Think about what he just said, though. If you don't respond to this, beloved, if you're not here, if you're here today, friend, and you're not a Christian, and you haven't responded to Jesus, and you sit and listen to sermons, and you sit in unbelief, here's what Paul would say to you. Here's what God said to the nation of Israel. You're a scoffer. You marvel and you look at things, and yet you're going to perish. God's doing a work and you will not respond because of your hardness of heart. And then he even says, look at it again, the more you live in the hardness of heart, the more it's going to cause greater and greater degrees of deception to come upon you. A work which will, you will never believe, even though it's described to you. The more you reject the message, the more it hardens your heart. So, the sermon's over. What in the world happens? This is awesome. As Paul and Barnabas, the sermon's done. Right? 41. 42. Okay. It's almost like he gets up. Okay, we've done our work here. It's not, it's not like he didn't do an altar call. He didn't say come sign a card. He said you've heard the truth. We'll see what God does with it. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that they might stay for another week and come preach again. So there was a group of them that said, we need more of this. And as you'll see, some of them were saved and some of them were awake and they're saying, come back. 43, now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed them out, followed Christ, speaking to them. And listen, they were saved. Notice, He encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. Beloved, you just heard a sermon that God used to save a bunch of God-fearers and ethnic Jews. What happens next is awesome. We just got to keep moving. Just Now, you, if we were in a missionary update, we'd be like, Whoa! God used that sermon to save all those people and they begged you to come back? You must be really be reaching people. Like, everyone wanted you to come back. And Paul would say, Yeah, they invited me back the next week. Next week's sermon didn't go as well. <laughs> Notice. For the next week, I'm sure they poured into those new believers, told them about the grace of God. By the way, in the next chapter, we're going to see they go back to install elders. So a whole bunch of people were saved. A church is planted. But notice, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, if you want to tick off some Jewish people, 
that normally sit in their same seats and park in their same parking spots and come to their same place, <laughs> park their donkey in their same stall every time that they come. You want to make them mad? Have the whole city show up. They probably can't even get into their synagogue. I mean, it's probably a pretty upsetting time for some of them. The whole city shows. What must have happened? Those new believers must have been literally on fire going around telling people what had happened. You don't know. Paul came. He preached. I was born again. I was saved. Jesus is the Messiah. You've got to come hear this guy. He is awesome. He's giving the word of the Lord. Notice why the people come in 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear what? The word of the Lord of the Lord. What is the reputation of a biblical missionary? They are just known for giving the Bible. They just give truth from the Scriptures. 45. Now people get angry. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Literally, Paul would speak and then you can imagine mockers were crying out, don't listen to him, he's a false teacher of the Old Testament, he preaches Jesus as the fulfillment, he can't be the fulfillment. They were trying to take him on. Notice though, Paul and Barnabas, 46, did they cower in fear? Did they hang back and soften their message? This is, this 46, here's what I thought about 46. This is why men must be trained in the church, affirmed by the church, and have proven character that they'll speak and won't fear men. Because 46 is all about their courage to stand when they're about to get hammered for their message. You send out a man fear that's full of ambition and prone to flattery and falls every time somebody faces some hostility, how in the world is he going to stand when people come against the message? These men are models of missionaries that are crushing fear of man in their life. 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. I'm sure they would have loved, the audience was probably watching, these angry Jews were being hostile towards them. It's probably they were just hoping if they would only cower, if they would lack courage, it would prove their message isn't authentic. If they would just fear man and come under us instead of serving the living God, it would demonstrate they're not really committed to what they say. And they looked at them and said, you're arrogant, you're proud, you're not even worthy of Christ's message because you reject it. No, we're turning to the Gentiles because of your arrogance. Notice, turning to the Gentiles. A significant shift in the book of Acts in that comment. 47, For so the Lord commanded, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. What's he quoting? He's quoting what Jesus said to him in his conversion. Look at 48. You're thinking, if we're a Gentile, this is good news. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Many of them would have thought, we're too far off, we're too wicked, we worship false gods, we worship idolatry, there's no saving us, that's the God of Israel. And all the Jews would tell them, yeah, unless you become a proselyte and come to Judaism and do everything we say and work by law, maybe we'll allow you to eat our scraps and hang around the temple. And Paul says, actually, this message is for them. They can come to Jesus the Messiah on Jesus' terms, not through Judaism. And look at what it says. The Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying. What are they glorifying? The Word of the Lord. Where is the power in missions? The Word of God. And as many, and this you can't get any stronger predestinarian statement here. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. Do you know that Paul and Barnabas would have thought God saves. He's an electing God. But He's got people here that from every tribe, tongue, and nation He's going to save. So we're going to keep preaching His message until He grants faith to those that He's going to grant faith to. And we trust that process. But what they need is the Word of God. So we're going to give it to Him. He appoints those who eternal life. They need the Word of God to believe. Look at it again. And as many as He appointed, they believed. And then look at 49. What is leading the charge in missions? And the Word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. God's word went viral. However, you preach no matter the cost. We'll finish with this. Look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women and the, and of prominence and the leading men of the city. This is very interesting. You don't see a comment like that. The Jews incited the devout women. 
Apparently you've got some officials, it seems, that were those in the city that could bring the hammer down on Paul and Barnabas. And they, it seems they went to their wives <laughs> and said, listen, do you know what these guys are doing? They're disrupting the city. They're causing a ruckus. You and your husbands. Then they got to the husbands. You need to stop these men. They're disrupting the city with their false message of Messiah. We had a nice, clean, comfortable city with Judaism functioning around Gentile false worship. We're not trying to make you Jews, but these guys, they're proselytizing. They're saying you need to be saved or you're going to hell. You need to do something about them. So notice, the devout women, it seems, and devout women... Some may see that they're... I gave you one view where I landed, that there are these devout women that, that maybe are devout to their husbands. Others could say they're devout women that hang around Judaism. Uh, it's a little bit hard to see, but I think it was probably the wives of these prominent leading men in the city. And some of these prominent leading men in the city probably hung around the Jewish temple as well. So that's probably a better way to describe it. Notice, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. True missionaries preach the same message of Christ no matter the audience, no matter the cost. And what did the disciples do? They shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. Just like Jesus said to do. You preach the truth, you give them the good news to follow me. If they reject it, you dust off your feet as a sign and you're moving on. But then Paul and Barnabas are going to circle back around and establish elders when they come back around. Beloved, here's the point of today. Here's biblical missions. You preach Christ. You let the Word lead. You see souls saved. You realize it's going to polarize. If you face hostility, it's normal. No matter the audience, Jew, Gentile, god fear the message is the same. They need to repent of their sin and trust in the Messiah. And no matter the cost, you just keep preaching. That's a true missionary. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time and this, uh, this very wonderful passage. Lord, we think about our own hearts as we prepare for communion. And maybe just a way to pray right now is to realize, Lord, there's times that we don't have a missionary heart even locally to care about souls. There's times we don't support and pray for our missionaries like we ought. There's times we're not as bold and courageous in our friendships and relationships when people are dying and lost around us. And Paul and Barnabas were preaching to the most self-deceived. They thought they were saved. That, that fills our lives. That, that fills so many of our friends here at the PBA campus. They, they have so many on their university that can think they're saved and they're not. And then all of us in our families, at our workplaces, people profess Christ that are self-deceived. Lord, we want to see them saved. We want to be compassionate. We want to be caring. We want to appeal, but we want to be courageous. We pray that we would... Um, See more missionaries, even from the Expositor Seminary, sent out like Paul, that have a biblical view of missions. And we pray that we would never redefine your view of missions for personal comfort in relationships. But we would just hold on to what you say and trust it. Thanks for your word, Lord. And we're so excited to be able to worship you, King Jesus, this next hour in communion. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.